And we pray now as we meditate upon your word that your Holy Spirit will take that word, work it into our hearts, minds, souls, uh, into our whole being so that we may love you with all we have and are and love our neighbours as ourselves. Amen. So there's two psalms in the Psalter, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, that are focused on the glory and the joy and the wonder of God's law. Other psalms, particularly Psalm 25, uh, take up this theme in parts. And all of these psalms that focus on the wonder of God's law really flow out of Psalm 1, which is one of the doorways into the psalm. Psalms 1 and 2 are kind of like the gateway into the whole Psalter. And Psalm 1 is really what you, you would call a wisdom psalm, and Psalm 2 is really what you call a prophetic psalm. And so all of wisdom and all of prophecy is kind of meets here in, in the psalms. And I think you could say that particularly of Psalm 119. So Psalm 1 really meditates on the, at the start of the Psalter on the blessedness of life that's grounded in the meditation on and delight in the law of God. Uh, uh, blessed is the man who does not do so and so, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. And he goes on and spells out in Psalm 1 what that... Uh, blessedness looks like. Now Psalm 119 is, as John said, it is the longest of all the Psalms and is longer than some of the letters in the New Testament. But when you read it, what you're reading is a, a kind of a rhapsodic paean of joy. It's, a, it's an exaltation in the glory of the law of God. Uh, it um, I read somewhere, and I cannot find where I read it, so I'm not even sure if I did. <laughs> but I read somewhere that when Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for a little while, he was a minister to the Lutheran Church in London. And during that time, he got connected to a, an Anglican commu uh, community, like a, um, people who were dedicated to religious life, where every day they would spend time meditating on Psalm 119. They, their whole lives, breakfast, lunch and dinner, were spent on meditating on Psalm 119. They must have really loved it <laughs> to do that. So this psalm, just a little bit of information about it really, it's got 22 verses and each of the verses begins with, um, with each of the verses has eight lines. You would have noticed we had eight verses in that reading there. That was one of the verses. So we've got, we call them the lines verses. So each verse of the 22 verses has eight lines. And in each, each line, for each verse, every line begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it begins with the first verse. Every line begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The second verse, every, ver every line begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and so on. So by the end of it, you've read an acrostic poem that's really well developed and well thought out. Um, and uh, 
Over those 22 verses, the songwriter is giving us words to exalt and rejoice in the goodness of God's law. It's as though he's meditated on Psalm 1 and Psalm 19 and expanded the verses there into this most glorious expression of delight and wonder. It's a love song. Psalm 119 is a love song. And it is for the obedient person, for the obedient person and the law, what the Song of Songs is for a woman and a man. So if you read the Song of Songs, that's a that's an exaltation of love, isn't it? And Psalm 119 is like that for the obedient person and the law. Uh, it's full of language that you would find in in the Song of Songs. So, for example, verses 47 and 48, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love, and I meditate on your statutes. Or verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. That's sounding like Song of Songs, isn't it? Or what about this? My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. It's like the, the woman's longing for the man, the man's longing for the woman. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. There's uh, times in the Song of Songs, isn't there, where the woman rises at midnight. She can't find a lover. She's looking for him. And that's what uh, this psalm says. When I wake in the middle of the night, I look. I, I have to find your law. I have to find your, your word. It's, it's exuberant. And also, it's a psalm that's full of resolve. In the face of opposition and slander and deceptive voices, the seeming triumph of the wicked, and in situations of sorrow and despondency, this psalm speaks of a determination to hold fast to the law of God. Verse 51, the insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. Or psalm, uh, verse 61, though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. Or verse 29, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Or verse 101, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. And then verse 106, I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. And then there was verse 33 to 40, which is a whole stanza of resolve. I'll read it again. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness give me life. So the gift of the law is the greater blessedness that the singer of this song knows. 
Uh, just think about that. He knows nothing more blessed from God than that God would give him his law. Is that how you think about God's law? That is the greatest blessedness you could know. For him, it's to have the face of God shine on him or her. Verse um, 136. I'll read that one to you. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. That doesn't seem to be the right verse, does it? <laughs> Never mind. 135. May your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Thank you. Um, it's the way of blessedness. That's verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. <coughs> and verse 11, it's safety from sinning. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's a secure thing to have the law of God. The bountiful dealings of God come to us to enable us to live and keep his word. And it gives us a wide place to walk in. Verse 45. If you feel constrained or constricted in your life, turn to the law of God. I shall walk in a wide place for I, shall, I have sought your precepts. Um, in an earth full of the steadfast love of the Lord, nothing is more desirable than knowing his statutes. So that's what verse 64 says. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. So in this world that's full of God's steadfast love, what would be the most important thing? Teach me your statutes. Well, we could go on and on with this. There's lots of verses that I haven't read yet. But I thought it'd be good to think about this love song to the law of God and reflect on why perhaps we don't sing songs like this because I don't think we do sing songs like this. Our language is really shaped by what matters to us. I don't know much about farming, but I know when I start talking to farmers, I hear words that I don't often hear or words that I may not know much about. It's said that the languages of the Inuit Alouette people of northern Canada have more than 50 words and phrases for snow. Now, I just know one word for snow, snow. <laughs> but I guess if you live in snow, you get to know snow. <laughs> and also, being able to distinguish between different kinds of snow becomes much more important, doesn't it? And they have to make their lives there in a region where winters are long and hard. And so they've, they've got a vocabulary that reflects the realities of the life they live. And this psalm, 119, is rich in words and phrases that deal with law and obedience. So here are some synonyms for law that are found in the psalm. Your way, your testimonies, your precepts, your statutes, your commandments, your righteous rules, your word, your law, your decrees, your wondrous works, 
your faithfulnesses, your promise, and more. My guess is that we might hear that list of words and think something like, how dreary, how unattractive all those words. When you hear those words, precepts, statutes, commandments, laws, what do you think? But the psalm loves them. The psalmist loves these words. And we also might think that each of these words run into one word, law. But they're actually all saying something a little bit different. They're a different facet of the law of God. They're focusing on something very sharp and particular, each of those words. I don't have the time to go through all that with you today, but one man uh, writing on this gave some insight into these words and he comments, if we consider these synonyms, we do see that they dovetail together and make a body of truth that is directive, uh, exhortatory, explanatory, enlightening, revelatory, and which declares the will of God for humanity. I think it's true to say of Psalm 119, oh, I just wanted to say something. In, on Friday, we went into the city. We had uh, an appointment there. And I was walking down the mall and I was following a young man in a black hoodie on the back of which was printed the word obey. I don't know what, what clothing company has that as their logo, logo but I thought, what an interesting... I actually wanted to go and ask him, why are you wearing that shirt? And then yesterday we were in, a, in the market and there was a young man serving a barista at one of the places where we had breakfast and um, he had a cap on that said, suffer. <laughs> What's with all these biblical words suddenly appearing on clothing? But anyway, but obey. I thought, wow, that'd be, that could be something that every Christian could wear. Not as a demand on others, but as an affirmation of the way of our life. Because I think it's true to say of Psalm 119 that the basic assumption about humanity in that psalm, the basic category by which our humanity is defined, is that of obedience. You are defined in your being by what you obey, by who you obey. A true person is one who knows and loves God and longs to obey all that he commands. Who longs to walk in his ways and to live in conformity to his will. That's what it is to be made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God is not really to be made like a replacement for God. It's really uh, more like a key and a lock. We're in the image of God, not by being exactly like him, but by fitting into him. And that fitting into God is what we call obedience. And so um, Jeff Bingham, uh, really such an important mentor in my life, he used to say this, and I never found anywhere where he's written it down, but he used to say it often in preaching. He used to say, God is creator and we are creatures. God is Lord, and we are servants. God is Father, and we are children. And each of those co-relatives 
uh, creatures, servants, children, are all actually obedience categories. Uh, we're children because we, we, you know, we're made to obey the Father. We're servants because we're made to serve the Lord. We're, we're creatures because uh, we're made to fit with the way God has created us. They're obedience categories. And so they're, they're descriptions of life that is a life of subordination and obedience, joyfully and lovingly so, but sub subordination and obedience all the same. So the question is, is the basic assumption of current Christianity and its expression in current hymnody, and I'm probably thinking about Western Christianity, <laughs> is, the, is the basic assumption of the Christ, Christian world in which we live that we are essentially made for obedience? Is that, the, is that the heartbeat of Western Christianity? I think we would tend to pick up from our hymnody, I'm not saying anything about the singing here, um, and from our preaching, that our basic um, category is to be loved. We have a lot of songs about being loved, and there's something very good about that. But there are dangers with it because, you see, to be loved is essentially a passive thing. It's not about anything you do. It's about something that God does. And it can leave us waiting for something to happen to us, some experience of being loved, out of which we hope to find the motivation to love God. And then our acts of love, following that, are not really linked to... Uh, um, obedience, but they're kind of like being me being authentic to the love of God, something like that. Authenticity is a big word today. I think obedience is a better word than authentic. The New Testament bears testimony to the love of God. God so loved the world, didn't he, that he sent his only son. God is love and light. John tells us. But he recognises that we are at risk of putting on that word love all of our misconceptions and deceptions. What does it mean to say that God is love? How do, what do we mean by that? Well, John tells us, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that he sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Paul's words. Because of this, God's people, those who believe in Christ, can be sure that there is nothing at all anywhere, no power, no experience, that can separate us from the love of God. So the basic presupposition about our lives as Christian people, as God's people, is that we are loved. That's what we believe. Uh, we will stand on the promise. We sang those words, didn't we? We are loved. We're not waiting for some experience of being loved. We are loved. God has loved us with an everlasting love that carries and supports us through all things. How do I know that God loves me? Because I believe that Christ has died for my sins, has been raised to set me right with God, and now sits at the Father's right hand. 
as an eternal vouchsafing that God's love will never end. And he's poured out the Holy Spirit so that the love of God is shed abroad in my heart. What the New Testament focuses on in the question of God's love, interestingly, is actually about what it means now for us now that God loves us. There's much more in the New Testament about our need to love one another than there is about God's loving us. Isn't that a bit of a shock? There's more, it's probably two to one, I think, about statements about our need to love than there is about God's loving us. That's the presumption. God loves us. What else could we think, having known what the gift of God in Christ? And so the call in the New Testament is not about a passive thing about being loved, it's about loving. And that's the fulfilment of the whole of the law, isn't it? To love. Jeff Bingham, in a book, quotes Karl Barth, which he didn't often do, but he did this, and this is a great quote. With Christ, we now live another life, a new life. In him, God's law stands before us and powerfully over us in its pure and true form, a single, irresistible offer and command of God's grace to us who've been put to death with him and now live in him. To be in Christ simply means to be bound by the pure and true law of God, established and made effective in him. That's what it is to be a Christian. As John puts it in his epistle, Beloved, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is thoroughly, perfectly moral. It doesn't sentimentalise us, it moralises us. In that it makes us obedient to God from the heart. That's what Paul says in Romans 6.17. Morality isn't just ethical, but obedient. To be ethical currently seems to mean to be congruent with whatever moral code you choose to adopt. That's what it means to be ethical. Everybody's ethical today, aren't they? But to be obedient is to submit to the way of life, the code of true human conduct given by God. And to be obedient means to listen to the word and to do it. This obedience is, of course, clearly in every part of God's word, not the grounds for our being right with God, but rather the outcome of his saving, redeeming, justifying grace towards us in his Son. To love God in response to his saving love for us is to love his word, his way, his truth, his commands. And maybe if we rediscover that deeply moral element to the truth of love, we will find ourselves able to rhapsodise about the law of God, which is summarised in those two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Amen.